0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to a new episode of the Health Conscious Podcast. As always, I am your host, Jefferson Akers, and today, Millen and I are joined by Dr. Esther Chernak. Dr. Chernak is an associate professor in the Department of Environmental Health at the Drexel University School of Public Health and the Drexel University College of Medicine. Dr. Chernak is also the director of Drexel's MD-MPH dual degree program. Her academic work focuses on a breadth of topics such as building community resilience through partnerships between public health and community health care. In addition to serving as an educator, Dr. Chernak is also a practicing physician in Philadelphia's community-based primary care safety net health system. Dr. Chernak holds a Bachelor of Arts in Comparative Literature from Princeton University, an MD from Robert Wood Johnson Medical School, and an MPH from Medical College of Wisconsin. If you enjoy our content and find it informative, we would really appreciate it if you subscribe to the podcast and leave us a review. As always, thank you for listening, and with that, let's begin the episode. Dr. Chernak, thank you so much for joining us today. We're very excited to have you on, and I'm sure you'll have some very valuable insights for our listeners.
1: You're welcome. Happy to be with you.
0: Great. And as I mentioned, we're really looking forward to our discussion, so I'll be getting us kicked off. To get us started, given that so much of a patient's health is determined outside the four walls of a hospital... Can you talk about how public health and community health organizations can partner together to improve patient health at-risk communities? And if you also don't mind briefly going over your definition of an at-risk community.
1: Yeah. So that's, uh, there's a lot to unpack in your question. I think first is the, the recognition that there's so much more to health than access to medical care and the quality of medical care that someone receives once they're already sick. We know that uh, so many health outcomes are, determined by what we call social determinants of health, and they relate to things like poverty, they relate to things like housing quality, education, education of your parent. We know that the zip code where you live is probably the most highly determining thing of your health and uh, than pretty much anything else, certainly more than your genetic makeup. And I think we've we are just beginning to understand as a country and grapple with the recognition that all of those things are informed by systemic racism and so you know so much of what we have to do in public health is understand that and redress it and in many ways i think a lot of the community partnerships that have arisen to address social determinants of health are reactive you know they they tend to uh, become initiated after someone's sick someone's been in the hospital then they get connected to community based organizations or they're diagnosed with something and they get connected to community based organizations And I think one of the things we really need to do is implement in public health what we call the health in all policies kind of uh, philosophy, where you recognize that all of these things that in society that relate to health in the longer term, quality of education, housing opportunities, equity in in, in other kinds of opportunities, access to, uh, to education, as well as employment opportunities, inform health. And we need to start... That work before people get sick and before we start to prevent sort of on uh, poor the poor health outcomes that um, lack of equity in those things tends to lead to.
2: Um,
1: Yeah, so and I think that you know one of the we've struggled I think in public health and in healthcare to how best address um, social determinants of health and redress. Um, you know, lacks of lack of opportunity in those and, and, and poverty and uh, racism in the in the context of, of health outcomes. And I think it's I think we're still struggling with that. I think, um, you know, we There's efforts like um, Jeffrey Brenner's uh, MacArthur Fellowship award-winning efforts in Camden, New Jersey, where uh, he identified so-called hotspots, people with high-risk medical conditions who were at risk for hospitalization and re-hospitalization and targeted uh, um, outreach efforts towards those folks to try to eliminate hospitalizations and reduce hospitalizations. Those have had, I think we're still we're still waiting to see how effective those can be. Um, the Affordable Care Act um, requires nonprofit hospitals to do community health assessments. Um, ideally, trying to engage them in the assessment and ideally. Um, um, redressing of health challenges in their own communities. Um, we see insurance companies, uh, health insurance companies, starting to reimburse things like um, housing costs and access to, you know, improve access to healthier foods, um, paying for gym memberships, you know, these are all things that are a little bit um, outside the original scope of just paying for healthcare services, but I think we still don't have a good solution for how to address some of these social problems when they impact health.
0: That's very interesting, Dr. Chernak, and point well taken on kind of the paradigm shift away from being reactive and being more proactive at the public and community health level. One follow-up question I did has is offhand: um, Are there any recent examples of successful partnerships between community and public health institutions that come to mind for you?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think. I think. You know, there's a couple of different examples of that. um, Certainly from a reactive perspective, but maybe even proactive perspective. I think, um, and I think the the global the global um, um, experience with this is a little bit different than our domestic experience in the U.S. I think, you know, I'm an infectious disease internal medicine doctor, and I've been taking care of people with living with HIV infection since the '90s. And you know, the Ryan White Care Act is probably one of the earliest examples we have of an interdisciplinary approach to health care and, and um, using funding not just to pay for drugs and physician visits, but also housing supports and social services and um, outreach efforts with respect to even prevention as well as um, case management. I think that's a good example of the success. Um, I think in the world of of immunizations, Uh, particularly I practice in the city of Philadelphia where there's a lot of at-risk children who are at risk for um, born in in impoverished settings, at risk for um, not not getting their routine childhood immunizations. Uh, The health department partners with many different community-based organizations serving many different diverse communities to try to make sure there's active outreach um, and getting kids into health uh, into into healthcare in the first couple of years of life, so that they get their immunizations. I think, you know, we see it with selected conditions, prenatal uh, cares. You know, um, people were uh, obstetricians often work closely in high risk communities with um, with social service organizations that uh, reach out to, to moms who might not necessarily access prenatal care. I think the community health worker model um, that connects um, high risk patients with community health workers when they're discharged from hospital so that they might uh, reduce the likelihood of readmission can be a successful model. Again, my beef with that is that it's often reactive. Somebody has to end up in the hospital and get sick first (laughs) before they can be connected to a community health worker. And I think we have to really work on you Know more so-called primary prevention. How do we keep people healthy um, and, and work and, and work in communities um, so that we're not reactive, but actually trying to maintain health and keep people out of the hospital in the first place?
0: Got it. That's an interesting point. It will be something that'd be interesting for us as grad students to monitor going forward and as we begin our careers. Our second question is about partnerships and how they can impact capacity constraints. Would you say establishing partnerships with community-focused or public health-focused institutions better prepares providers to manage capacity constraints? And depending on your answer, can you also elaborate on why or why not?
1: Yeah, I guess what you mean by that is partnerships with a healthcare facility, a healthcare institution, and a more public health or population health-focused institution or community organization. Is that, is that what you're asking?
0: Yes, that's exactly right.
1: Yeah, so, I, you know, the challenge, of course, when you're providing health care um, is that it's hard to leave the building. It's hard to leave the facility. And there's a lot of um, issues that impact the health of our, of our patients um, that occur in community settings. And so I think, you know, I think recognizing that and recognizing that access to healthy food and even just even just things like access to, to medical services and access to insurance and access to um, different benefits, you know, is something that often falls outside the scope of what healthcare facilities provide, particularly clinicians. Um, and I think that there's, um, you know, a lot of way in which uh, hospitals, healthcare facilities, both inpatient and outpatient, and partner with community organizations, particularly when it comes to discharge planning and uh, trying to prevent readmissions, particularly among highest risk people. You would ask me at the beginning of this, how do I define at risk? And it's such a broad definition. Um, you know, at risk can mean um, you know all those, all the, all the conditions that I just described earlier that lead to poor health outcomes. Um, 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 diverse ethnically and racially diverse communities, communities that are impoverished, communities. Um, that don't speak English, communities that have access and mobility challenges, uh, disabilities. Um, many people would consider children under the age of 18 an at risk community because we know that they have challenges of dealing with health issues and at-, at risk for poor outcomes. And I think, you know, arguably the partnerships that healthcare facilities can create with communities. Um, basically would focus on those vulnerabilities and ways to redress them in ways that ideally are are proactive as opposed to reactive. Um, It can be challenging to do that and communities are heterogeneous and complex and it's hard to know who speaks for communities that's a big challenge. You can, you know, when we only deal with community based organizations that's a reductive approach to dealing with communities, not everybody is affiliated with an organization and different organizations might profess to represent whole communities and in fact that may not be the case. Um, so it's often complex in terms of working in communities. And there are many, many folks working in public health who do just that, who try very hard to, to work with communities, understand communities, plan with communities. Um, and I think that's that's kind of few, the future challenge. And I think another future challenge is integrating the healthcare world. Into, into that work. I think, you know, there hasn't, you know, the, in my mind, the ACA provision that requires nonprofit hospitals to do community health assessments is still a work in progress. It's a great idea. I love the idea of enlisting hospitals um, uh, to help solve the healthcare challenges of their communities, but the degree to which that works, the outcomes of those processes, I think, remain to be, remain to be seen in terms of how effective that requirement has been.
0: That's an interesting point Dr. Chernak because a lot of times hospitals do serve as kind of anchor institutions wherever they're located but then to your point, it will be difficult to kind of tangibly measure how much of that impact can be felt in the community going forward.
1: Yeah, good point. One of the the things that I think um, hospitals can do and it's similar in many ways to universities is, um, is provide jobs and hire the local community. Um, and ensure equity in their hiring policies. That's a big part of providing a stability kind of framework to to, uh, struggling communities that might be surrounding those healthcare facilities. So there's a lot of different ways that are maybe direct and indirect that uh, hospitals and healthcare facilities can, can help their surrounding communities.
3: So Dr. Chernak, I wanna take a step back and kind of go back to one of the points that you mentioned earlier with Jefferson's question, which was accessibility and tying that right back into sort of patient adherence. If I'm putting myself in the shoes of a provider or a health system or a hospital that's really focused on community health initiatives, specifically at the point of discharging a patient and kind of looking ahead in their care process, how do I go about minimizing the risk of patients not adhering to my plan? Uh, You know, this is sort of going back to the the common phrase of, you know, you can lead a horse to the well, but you can't force them to drink the water. You can provide all the resources and help them improve their accessibility to care, but there's only so much you can do after that point. And it's really on the patient to sort of adhere to that plan. So how exactly do I go about minimizing that? And the follow-up question to that is, you know, when I'm establishing these requisite care teams or these care teams that I think are necessary to helping meet the patients where they're at, what are all the components that go into that?
1: Yes. So of course, you know, if you had the answer to that, you'd be the next MacArthur Fellowship award winner. I think that's the biggest challenge, right? How do we, how do we you know, the address, particularly these highest risk patients. How do we, you know, do discharge planning once someone's, say, in the hospital in a way that really, really improves their health and doesn't just send people out back into the conditions that ultimately are going to lead to them being readmitted. And I think it's very, very challenging. And, you know, some of it, I think, has is the challenge of discharge planning. We are rushed to discharge patients right now because hospitalizations after a certain number of days aren't paid for. Um, and I think discharge planning often gets short shrift. And I think, you know, making sure people have their medications, that they can get their medications, that it's more than just writing a prescription, but in fact, they can actually get their medication that their company, that their insurance company will pay for it, and they can actually get it is something else. And making sure that their home environment isn't going to be contributing to, to conditions that will cause either new problems or just recurrence of the old problems. I think it's very challenging, and that some of this stuff maybe beyond the scope of healthcare professionals and healthcare providers i think you know this notion of connecting people to community outreach workers to doing discharge visits home visits Post discharge, to make sure people have the meds they need, that they're getting food, that they're um, adhering to diet, that they're doing all these things that might have uh, that might prevent the next uh, health crisis is critical. I think you know the the more profound problems like you know sending someone back into an unsafe home, into an impoverished environment, those are much harder to redress and require the much much more proactive. Uh, interactions. You know, one of the things that insurance companies are insisting on now is that a primary care provider follow up with patients after an ER encounter, whether it's a telehealth visit or an in-phase visit. That's an effort to to, to do the kind of thing you're talking about, redress that. Um, will it work? It's hard to know. You know, it's hard to know because there's so much more to, to you know, what, what can cause a, a health crisis. And in terms of, you know, who, who are the requisite members of, of a team like that? You know, that's going to vary, I think. Um, but I, you know, I, I've had the luxury in many ways of working in these Ryan White funded HIV programs for 25 years. And, you know, one of the, one of the beauty, one of the nice things about that program is that is, it is in many ways the the earliest form of a patient-centered medical home, you know, it's physicians working closely with nurses and outreach workers and navigators and social workers, and maybe in, in some cases, pharmacists. And, you know, I think in, in, depending on the clinic, depending on the patient, any one of those individuals is incredibly important, but having case managers is important. Ultimately, you're right. The health of, you know, in some ways the help, you know, there are personal choices that inform Health outcomes, but there's always this balance between what seems like a personal choice and maybe isn't a personal choice. Maybe there's real access to health care issues. We've seen this in the COVID vaccination program um, that have so much more to do with whether you think you want the vaccine or want the vaccine. It's can you take days off to get to the vaccine site? Can you take days off to get to to, you know to to deal with the 24 hours of fever that you might get if you get the vaccine? Um, is there are there issues of racism and discrimination? Um, that make it difficult to get to site. Do you have to pre-register with a web-based application to which you might not have any access if you don't have a computer at home? There are so many layers that really are, are challenging to address when it comes to thinking about access to services.
3: Got it. So I guess if I had to, I mean, there's a lot of components that are involved in this, like you mentioned, but, you know, if I were thinking about what I can do within the four walls of a hospital, it, you know, some of the things that you mentioned, I guess, were You know, making sure that we don't rush the discharge planning, even though there is a high volume of patients that are coming in, either through the ED or through outpatient, reconciling the medications and really making sure that patients are getting them before they leave and step foot outside of the hospital because it's really hard to get them to come back or, you know, go and get their medications from elsewhere. And then the final point that you mentioned was sort of uh, home environment, you know, doing a lot of research and figuring out how can we provide at-home care and making sure that we're not sending patients back to unsafe environments if that's the case. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, I think all those things are important. They're all easier said than done in many ways. Um, And a busy intern or resident who's writing discharge orders, uh, isn't going to necessarily think to say, well, I'm writing this prescription. They're not going to have the time to see whether it's covered by their insurance company, whether a prior authorization is going to be needed, You know, whether a primary care doc is aware of a person's hospitalization, much less discharge, and can pick up the ball and deal with a transition of care. Um, all those things are issues. And I think home assessments are really critical, particularly with highly complex and medically complex, both children and adults. And it's very difficult to do those without a community partner. Um, it's hard enough to take care of people in the, in the walls of your healthcare facility, um, given the you know the time constraints that we all um, under which we all function. You really need a community partner, and it's it's hard to sort of figure out who those folks are. I mean, many you know for years now hospitals have partnered with home health organizations to try to I think redress some of those transition issues and. You know, I think those are challenging. I mean, there's lots of different home health organizations um, and, you know, they people can only come in only so many times a day. And even if you come in and help a a visiting nurse or a healthcare professional goes in and helps a person take their meds, reviews blood pressure, deals with vital signs, at some point those services are going to end and you're really just patching. You're not really necessarily changing some of the underlying conditions that might have, you know, led to the poor health outcome or issue in the first place.
3: Got it. Okay. It's worth
1: investing in those. I think those are all a start, as it were.
3: Okay. No, thank you so much for shedding light on this. Before I move on to the second question, I actually want to take another step back because one thing that you mentioned earlier in this episode was hiring. And I want to shed light on this specifically because it seems like on a national level, we're facing pretty significant shortages with staffing pretty much everywhere in any unit you can think of from literally dietary to environmental services to RNs to, you know, just simple lab techs processing, you know, uh, you know, in clinical pathology and anatomical pathology. So looking at it specifically with care management, when you're facing a lot of shortages with staffing there, how exactly do you address those issues? Because that is such a critical component when the patient walks out the door, providing them those resources, when you don't even have enough people to do that, you know, how, how do you tackle that?
1: So that's a great question, um, and I think we're seeing this now with COVID. Um, you know, I'm I'm seeing it in the in my mini world of HIV care, where you know the case management system um, is a lot thinner than it used to be. We've lost a lot of case managers and social service professionals. I think you have to make a targeted, a very intentional effort to reconstitute the workforce. And I think, you know, you can, you know, we can. Argue about which part of the workforce we should prioritize first. (laughs) There's lots of arguments to be made for all kinds of things. Um, But it's a question of sort of figuring out, okay, what's the gap in our care needs? What's the gap in personnel? And how do we redress it? you know, and how do we, you know, recruit people and train them? Training is huge. Um, you know, a lot of this, a lot of the people I know who do this work, they don't necessarily have masters in social work. You know, there's a lot of on-the-job training that has to be done. I mean, the good news is on-the-job training works, so it's a question of sort of figuring out who do we need, how do we recruit, how do we train, making sure we have the funding to, to, uh, to pay people. I think that's part of our, one of our biggest crises right now, isn't it? That people are recognizing that jobs that pay the minimum wage Aren't worth having in many ways, um, and I think you know people are complaining about you know how hard it is for small businesses to pay higher wage, and I think I, I understand that you know from, from the perspective of small business owners, but you know I think we're at a we're at a touch point in our country where I think we have to have an honest conversation of how much people how much money do people need to make to just live in this country, and coming up with ways for us to pay those wages. So I think you know in terms of how do we how do we hire. You know, we need in many ways that state and national interventions to sort of, you know, that where there's leadership that says these are key, key jobs. We need to prioritize them. We need to collaborate with community colleges and other institutes of, you know, high schools and higher education institutions and and come up with career paths that we that we intentionally cultivate to attract people into jobs and pay them once they get there um, it's a, that's a sea change really. I mean, that's not an easy thing to do, but that's what I would suggest.
3: Absolutely. And I think the COVID pandemic has really only kind of exacerbated this problem because people are now reevaluating the life that they previously lived and looking at better options that are, you know, better work hours, better wages, you know, better, better education, things like that. Um, transitioning to a slightly different topic now, you know, what are some common population and public health initiatives that, Hospitals and health systems are, are now slowly beginning to adopt and implement into their healthcare delivery process. And on that note, if you can kind of address some challenges that are also associated with implementing these initiatives and how we can reduce them.
1: Yeah, so you know, it's a good question. Um, and again, not at no single in, in simple, easy answers. I think, you know, probably the theme. For all these kinds of initiatives, is that I think hospitals are doing more outside the walls of their hospitals. They're, you know, we're seeing we're living in an era of mergers, and we're living in an era of health systems as opposed to health hospitals per se, right? So you have hospitals networking and, or you know participating in networks and merging with community-based organizations, with community-based clinics and outpatient settings in in communities as opposed to just within hospital grounds and on hospital campuses. Um, And I think those are successful. I think we're seeing hospitals invest in urgent care facilities um, to both provide care in communities, but also ideally create a payer base and a a patient mix that ultimately will use their hospital. I think those are things that people are looking to do. I think um, certainly in the world of prenatal care, um, we're seeing hospitals uh, provide prenatal care in community-based and outpatient settings um, in neighborhoods that ultimately will recruit and draw on on patients who will have and deliver babies in the hospital itself. I think it's those sorts of things. I think we've seen hospitals invest in public health projects like mobile healthcare to bring healthcare to communities, I mean, those are those I think are examples. I think hospitals partnering with social service organizations is another social service organizations that are based in communities is is another example of potentially successful partnerships. I think this is a work in progress, and particularly, you know, as we see, you know, fewer and fewer independent practitioners and, you know, clinicians and the primary care practices and even specialty practices working under the auspices of a larger hospital. We're seeing hospitals think of themselves differently. You know, they're not just, you know, four walls that do operations and inpatient care. You know, it's a different, you know, mindset of, you know, we're part of a health system and we want to take care of people cradle to grave and we want to be in communities. And that's, you know, the ways in which that manifests itself in terms of the way health services are delivered, I think is is evolving. I mean, your generation, I think, of uh, healthcare executives and healthcare managers will, will ultimately determine how successful that is and what that looks like.
3: Absolutely, and I think you know. To your point, it sounds like you're seeing a lot of increased mergers nowadays. And I can definitely say, you know, from the conversations that I've had with executives at hospitals and health systems across across the nation, there's definitely a very increased focus and effort, a conscious effort to have more integrated care, acquiring more community-based clinics, like you said, even private practice clinics that are really, really out there in isolated areas and Tapping into those patients in, in those areas specifically. And then you also mentioned, you know, more urgent care, more prenatal care, and then partnering with social service organizations. Um, again, trans- transitioning to a slightly different topic now. You know, one of the questions that I had when I was entering healthcare was the difference between an academic medical center and a community-based hospital. Can you explain the difference between the both of them? And then, if possible, also address. The emergency preparedness plans uh, within both of those systems, because that's one component that you also kind of worked on.
2: Yeah, so,
1: um, you know, I guess the the
2: broad differences are that, you know, academic medical centers are uh, invested in education, you know, often medical education, graduate medical education. They often have federally funded residencies and training programs, Um, they often uh, provide specialty services. Um, and um, they uh, may or may not. Many people believe that because of the work they do and often where they're located, they often take care of a higher percentage of, of publicly funded, publicly insured patients. Maybe uninsured patients. Maybe more complex patients like trauma, trauma victims, and burn victims, and other people who where the cost of care is great. Um, so in some ways, they may have more financial challenges than community hospitals. On the other hand. They have other sources of revenue and funding, which balances and offsets that. And it really depends, I think, on on where you are. I look at Philadelphia; we have multiple academic medical centers, and and some of those, I think, uh, some of those traits or characteristics are, are relevant. But we also have academic health centers that, um, you know, are heavily endowed, have a ton of graduate medical education programs, and the funding that goes with those, um, and have many sources of money that money and funding that makes them much more resilient, despite the fact that they have a large care for of, of patients. They have a lot of uh, well-insured patients who go to them for their specialty services and um, specialty care and, you know, elective procedures, et cetera. Community hospitals, community health centers um, don't have that investment in, in graduate or primary, or primary medical education. So they don't have uh, teaching or research as a part of their mission. Um, and they may have more primary care And less uh, uh, and frontline kinds of services, um, and fewer specialty and tertiary care, quaternary care kinds of services available. They may or may not have a different payer mix in terms of more privately insured patients compared to publicly insured patients. They tend to be smaller, and they have less diverse sources of revenue. And you know, I think you know, it's it's you know, I think before the COVID pandemic, you would say, well, academic health centers have it harder. Um, you know, they might, they, they, because they care for so many, um, for a much more diverse pair mix and perhaps people with, with, with less reimbursable, less, you know, with health insurance that reimburses less, but I think we've seen a lot of community hospitals in this pandemic, uh, suffer greatly and, you know, they don't have the, the they don't have the resources necessarily to, uh, um, with respect to, um, Investments in in primary in uh, personal protective equipment and other kinds of invest in other kinds of resources. They lost the elective or specialty procedures that they had to curtail during the pandemic that helped subsidize uh, less remunerative kinds of healthcare services. Um, but we've seen a lot of small community-based hospitals close and shutter their doors. Not just in COVID, frankly, in the last you know one or two decades, I think in major cities, particularly that have lots of healthcare, and even in rural areas. Which which are really struggling uh, to keep small hospitals and community-based facilities open for care. So I think that's the challenge. And in terms of their emergency management plans, I mean some of those some of those payer issues obviously affect them. I think you know, you know, the emergency management plans vary, right? Emergencies that are like weather-related are going to be very, very different than an emergency like a pandemic that lasts for 15 or 20 months and, and the kinds of stresses, it, it, you know, it's going to place on hospitals. Um, you know, I think the biggest challenges in, in COVID were that you had, you know, hospitals for some period of time unable to offer procedures uh, that, you know, elective procedures that, Tended to pay the bills, and you had them um, taking on the cost of COVID care. Um, people in hospitals, like on the ventilators, for several weeks <clears throat> with poor reimbursement. Particularly, people who have under, had un- and underinsured care, you know, pay, uh, pay, uh, patient populations or you know poor care mixes. Um, and you had the additional expenses of things like re-outfitting different you know, wards and, and parts of the institution and purchasing of personal protective equipment and, and the medications for COVID. So you had those sorts of stresses. Those are obviously gonna be different than a, a six day hurricane that actually destroys the physical plant and maybe has to be rebuilt. I think the biggest difference in the emergency management plans, uh, say community health centers versus academic health centers has a lot to do with the resources to which those institutions have access to buy things like supplies and ensure staff, you know, continuity um, and space continuity. Um, and in whether they're a part of a health system that can actually, you know, sometimes, you know, supplant or, or support a facility where, you know, some an isolated or independent facility is just not gonna have, um, you know, the support that a system might have where you can deploy resources across the system as needed.
3: Got it. So to make sure I kind of understood this correctly, it seems like academic medical centers are very heavily invested in medical education and teaching and specialty services to really drive that innovation process forward. They usually have uh, a higher ratio of publicly insured patients with complex care needs, and then they have more sources of revenue and funding versus community health systems or community-based hospitals that don't exactly have a strong financial backing don't really offer a lot of medical teaching and research, but they're more focused on primary care, and they typically have private, privately insured patients. And then kind of referring back to the emergency preparedness plan, it seems like the main focus here is just resources to buy supplies, to have more space, and to retain staff at both of these different facilities.
1: Yeah, and it's more than retaining staff. You know, at some point, if your staff are depleted, the question is, do you have access to more pools of staff? Can you pull from facility A to facility B? Can you pull resources from facility A to facility B? I think health systems and academic health centers may have deeper pockets and just, just more infrastructure on which to rely, particularly for a long-term emergency or emergency that requires rebuilding. And, and a lot of it has to do with financial assets. The the, the, the wrench in the works or the, 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 the variation here, I think, which we're seeing as we speak is just, we now have health systems in which academic health centers work closely with community health centers or community doc hospitals. And they may be a part of the same academic health system. And how do those, and those community hospitals, which traditionally may not have had their own residency or maybe not have had a research program, are now a part of an academic health system. And maybe they train medical students and maybe medical residents rotate to them. And maybe they now benefit from um, the relationship of, of the system and being a part of an academic health system and training students. And, you know, I think we'll see the way in which the, those kinds of initiatives and innovations are impacting the work of community centers, community hospitals. Because mm-hmm. I think from a training perspective, you know, most physicians um, who are now medical students aren't necessarily going to go on to become academic researchers. They're more likely to practice in communities. And I think we realize that that's good training. It's good training to see how community hospitals provide care and work with communities. And um, you know, for many, for many physicians or future physicians, uh, that's exactly what they're gonna be doing. And there's no reason why that shouldn't be a part of their training. Uh, so that in some ways the, 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 the differences in those institutions, which are real, um, may dissipate over time as we see mergers in which you know, those two different types of institutions are a part of one health system.
3: That is a really excellent point that you brought up, uh, specifically with staffing, you know, health systems and hospitals being able to pull staff from from pretty much any hospital within that system. And then on a higher level, it's just also interesting to see, like you mentioned, that within a system, you have a lot of academic centers, and then you have community-based hospitals, and they're all kind of partnering together where, you know, the academic will drive the innovation, and then they'll kind of extrapolate these procedures and standardize them across these community health hospitals, and then, you know, get that care to the patients so that you're really getting the best type of care possible. So really interesting to see where that's going to go in the next couple of years. Um, That kind of wraps up our industry segment questions. I want to transition a little bit more towards professional development now. Um, With a significant increase in medical students choosing to specialize over the past decade versus going into primary care or rural care, Um, What advice do you have for them going into residency and deciding, you know, whether to pursue a specialty or or going into primary care, which we have a very significant shortage of?
1: Yeah, Um, good question. Tough question in many ways. You know, I guess I I, there are so many kinds of things, factors that inform those decisions. Um, And I think the biggest concern is obviously a student that might make a decision around primary versus specialty care based on future income. And, you know, it would be, um, you know, it would be great. I mean, we, the work of primary care, which is so important, and I'm hugely biased, full disclosure, I'm a primary care doc working in a <laughs> safety net, you know, outpatient clinic network in the city of Philadelphia. So I am you know, I'm biased towards valuing that work. Um, and I'm, and I believe in, in the value of of excellent primary care and the kind of continuity of care of longitudinal care and um, it's, re- it's a rewarding profession and it's also, I think, great for patients to have a clinician in their life that they trust and who grows old with them. I say that to my patients all the time. Um, but um, I think, you know, I think ultimately people have students have to make a decision based on, in terms of what they want to do based on what they like. And you know, the, one of the great things about, I think, the field of medicine is there's so many different things you can do with the medical degree. So many different ways to practice. You know. Primary care and adult, primary care pediatrics, family medicine, uh, surgery, uh, and different types of surgical specialties, OBGYN, um, there's, and radiology. And so much of that decision, I think, honestly has should should ideally tap into a, a student's interests and aptitudes. There are people who like to do things with their hands, and there are people who like more cognitive things. And those are obviously the critical decisions that should inform those choices. Where you want to practice, what kind of relationship you want to have with docs, I mean, with, with docs as well as patients. I mean, those those are the those are the things that ideally should inform those things, as opposed to how much debt you have, and how how best you can address that. Um, and so, you know, I'd love us I'd love as as a community for medical school to be less expensive, so that we erased the way <laughs> those financial considerations from those lifelong professional decisions. Um, I'd like us to have more in the way of um, programs that, you know, um, deferred and and paid off student debt based on service in either certain locations or in certain fields. And those, those, I guess, arguably do, in fact, inform patient uh, physician decisions. Um, But, you know, I think in terms of, you know, I I, I wish that primary care had better remuneration, that there wasn't such huge discrepancies in what you could earn. In different fields, um, um, so that um, there were, there was more equitable, um, you know, resource distribution in terms of healthcare um, and the way it's provided, and 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 that and that you know one of the jo- the challenges I think of primary care is it's you know not as re- not as remunerated, not as well renumerated as a surgical and procedure-focused on specialties. And there's lots of hassles associated with it because you're the frontline doc, you're the one who's interfacing all the time with insurance companies, and there's lots of paperwork. And, you know, I think our billing system and the way way in which we have so many different insurance companies with different rules and micro-rules makes the practice of medicine broadly much more complex. And it's often that kind of stuff ends up falling on the back of the primary care physicians, pediatricians, internists, family medicine docs, some OB-GYNs, who just don't wanna deal with that. And you know, coming up with ways, I think, to, to simplify those processes. I think in many ways, the insurance companies have really made the practice of medicine much less pleasant than I think it was a generation ago. And if we could figure out a way to get rid of some of that stuff, we might have uh, people making decisions around what, what specialty they wanna go into based on what do they like, who are they, and what's the best alignment with the, you know, the demands of that field. Um, now I think it's a little, more, a little more complicated and there's a lot of financial considerations that play into those decisions. You, may understand, you guys may understand those things um, better, than, better than perhaps I do.
3: No, absolutely. Thank you so much for shedding light on this.
0: Dr. Chernak, one of my biggest takeaways from our conversation up until this point is the evolution of a care delivery site and also um, there'll be more of a focus on community and public health um, in medicine, going forward. So, for our clinician listeners, can you kind of elaborate on the value to them of supplementing their clinical education and training with a foundation and the fundamentals of public health?
1: Yeah, thanks for asking that. That's such a great question. So, you know, the, one of the courses I teach at the Dirks University College of Medicine it's called Frontiers. And it's, it's very much a course in which I try to convey the importance of having a population health perspective on the practice of medicine. Um, and I think there's a couple of different ways in which it's important. Um, I think this generation of physicians is going to be responsible for the outcomes of their entire patient panel. You know, it's not just going to be patient A, patient B, is their blood pressure controlled or not. It's, you know, in, the, in your practice of 7,000 patients, what percentage of them have controlled high blood pressure? what percentage of them have controlled diabetes. Um, so certainly thinking within the context of um, you know, population outcomes as opposed to individual patient outcomes is increasingly important um, for today's and, and, and future healthcare professionals. I think that's one thing. Um, I think that you know, the ACA's request to for nonprofit hospitals to think about some of those same health metrics in the context of community outcomes is probably the next step of that. And getting not just facilities, but even practitioners invested in the health of their communities, drives that home even further. One of the one of the projects we do in Frontiers at the end of the uh, at the end of the course is called the Population Health Challenge, where students work in groups to um, and they review the community health assessment that the City of Philadelphia's Health Department does every year, and they identify a prog- a problem or health condition within that community health assessment that requires improvement and they, they're charged with, they're given a week basically to study that problem, understand the epidemiologic as well as pathophysiologic issues around that problem um, and come up with a population health intervention to improve that or redress that. And then they present their solution or innovation at the end of the week um, in, in a poster session where everybody's presenting their initiatives. And you know, I think that's a really useful lens in which to look at, at, at the work of being a doctor. I can teach teach this, I can uh, treat this adolescent with chlamydia, um, I can prevent this case of HIV infection, but how do I prevent or reduce chlamydia infections among all adolescents in my community? What can my hospital, what can my facility, what can I as a physician do to um, reduce HIV infections, to improve maternal outcomes in the context of pregnancy, to improve uh, uh, child health? And, uh, you know, those are the sorts of questions where you where I think we really push students to tie their work as a physician <clears throat> and future health professional to the health of communities and, and see that direct linkage. And one of the things when I've spent most of my career in the intersection between clinical medicine and public health, and one of the biggest challenges we've had is in the US is I think this growing division between the so-called personal health system, clinical, clinical facilities and doctor's offices and hospitals in the public health system, you know, government public health programs, even the the nonprofit community organizations that work with them. And increasingly, the two don't know what each other does. You know, clinicians have really no idea what goes on in a health department, and increasingly public health agencies don't really understand what it means to practice medicine and take care of people and how challenging that is. And, you know, I hope that this course and, you know, other medical schools come up with other courses that do the same thing. I hope that, you know, <clears throat> we need, we, we would work better as a society, I think, if our public health system understood what healthcare professionals do and vice versa and work better and collectively to solve our really you know wicked public health challenges the the tough the tough stuff that you know really you know was you know depends on addressing both social determinants of health as well as providing the right treatment for the right patient. Those, are, those I think are, are really important challenges. And, and that's why I encourage physicians to think big, not just think about that one patient at the other side of your stethoscope, but also think broadly about the health of your practice, the health of all the patients that come to your hospital and frankly, in your, in your community because they're in, inextricably linked.
0: No, I definitely agree with you there, Dr. Chernak. From my perspective as an MHA student, that's interesting to hear because on the more administrative and executive side, there's a change in thought towards being more of a system-level thinker, but on the clinical side, it's also interesting to hear how there's more of a change in thought to being a more community health and pop health-focused thinker with more consideration for upstream and downstream factors that influence health. To close us out, and I know you had mentioned this earlier about how practicing in a community health or public health type of setting is a great learning opportunity, but to close us out, can you talk about how your experiences working in a safety net hospital setting help you develop as a physician and public health professional?
1: Sure. Um, so to be clear, where I work is actually a community-based health center network. It's These are outpatient clinics. Um, and <clears throat> I work in a network in the city of Philadelphia that's actually kind of a federally qualified health center network. So it's kind of a hybrid uh, kind of system where we have um we're supported by the city health department kind of like an old-fashioned public hospital was but we're kind of an outpatient equivalent of that but in the last decade or so we've also become community federally qualified health centers so we are allowed to take advantage of federal reimbursements and um uh grants and uh training and um and programs that support our work as well in terms of, of billing and reimbursement um so um, it's actually the old. It's since my fellowship, um, you know, it's it's really the it's the main place that I've practiced medicine. Um, and uh, you know, what what's great about it in many ways is um, I I think a lot about, and I'm you know I think a lot. Most of my patients are are living in poverty, or have publicly funded health insurance, and so I think a lot about the. Um, the, the fiscal and the social factors that they face every single day. They, um, you know, when they, t- in terms of living their lives, not just, you know, whether they're going to take their diabetes or their blood pressure or their HIV medication, but where do they get their food? Who cooks for them? Um, um, you know, how do they make a living? How do they pay their rent? I, you know, I think about those things all the time. Uh, I feel I have to do that to, to provide care for my, for my, for my patients. And I think that's really critical. And I, you know, everyone needs to do that—not not just people working in safety net settings—but I think it's it's those are issues. Those are issues that are maybe even more central there. And I think one of the things that I've loved about working in my safety net setting, which is really geared. To provide health care for folks is um, we're subsidized and we um, to, to do that and so I can provide care for patients one of our one of the great things about our network is that we have contracts with backup hospitals to do referrals and consultations and um, radiology studies and other sorts of studies um, and and patients who are enrolled in our network uh, get those services because there are patients we also have pharmacy on site and we have a, a limited but very you know uh, important inventory of medications that are life-saving that we can give our patients who don't have health insurance that covers pharmaceuticals, and there's something liberating about being able to refer a patient to a specialist or or write a prescription and know that they can't afford it, but they're going to get it because they're a part of our system, and that's the way it should be everywhere. We shouldn't have a system that is really so multiple-tiered where if you have insurance, you get this. If you don't have insurance, you get that we should have a healthcare system for all that (laughs) provides the services that people need regardless of their ability to pay for them. And so that, you know, in in, in safety net networks that are funded to do those things, I mean, granted, there's, there's always limits and that kind of thing. Uh, You can do that. You can provide medical care uh, for people regardless of their ability to pay. And that is incredibly rewarding. So for me, that's, you know, that's, you know, I'd love to see us as a country get to a place where <laughs> that was the standard. I'm not sure we're there yet, but that's what I would like to see.
0: I think you summarized really well what makes pursuing a career, whether it's a clinical career or a career in health administration, so exciting, and that there's been so much progress made in terms of resolving some of these problems, but there's still so much work to be done. Um, Dr. Chernak, that was it for us from questions for the day. I think I speak for all of our listeners when. I say this and that you were extremely insightful and we really enjoyed you having you on. So thank you so much.
1: Thank you. It was my pleasure.
0: And to our listeners again, if you enjoyed our content, please feel free to leave us a review or like, and subscribe to the podcast until next time. Take care.